Greetings, and welcome back to the Autism Annex podcast, the monthly show that brings you insights and real-world expertise from the worlds of autism and special education. I'm your host, John Andrew Slominski. Almost without thinking, many of us fall into communication patterns of countless types on a regular basis. Considering your own life, you might have several verbal conversations, you might gesture as you speak, there might be some text messages or emails, and yes, even a Zoom meeting, all in less than an hour. Switching from one mode of communication to another though, and communicating itself, often presents challenges for many people with autism and other disabilities. The month of May marks Better Hearing and Speech Month, a month dedicated to raising awareness and promoting understanding of hearing health and communication disorders. Joining me on today's podcast is a panel of expert speech-language pathologists, bringing a wealth of experience working in special education. Welcome, panelists, and thank you for being here today. Would you please begin by introducing yourselves? I'm Lori Kellogg. Uh, I am a speech pathologist. I am in the Portland, Oregon area. Uh, I worked for the same agency for 28 years. First seven or eight years, I worked as a speech pathologist in direct services, and then I went into administration the last 20 years of my career. I am a parent of four children, grandparent of six. My first grandchild was born with autism, so that gives me lots of perspective on the topic of autism. Not answers necessarily, but lots of perspective. I'm Nancy Dunn. Um, I'm a speech-language pathologist, um, but I'm the director of the outreach program at Easter Seals in Arkansas. And we are technical assistance providers to all the schools in the state of Arkansas. So we typically see the students who are more multiply or um, more severely involved. We do a lot with assistive technology, um, augmentative and alternative communication. But I have four grown sons, but, but the best thing is I have two grandkids. So <laughs> there's nothing like them. My name is Amy Dearman. I uh, am a speech language pathologist and also um, a BCBA. I started off my career in New Orleans, where I'm originally from, and then I moved to Austin uh, after Hurricane or during Hurricane Katrina, I guess, and worked in a school district here for uh, about nine years as a speech therapist. Um, I learned about the STAR program uh, when I was working in um, preschool classrooms and became very interested in the areas of autism and behavior. And so I've been working um, in some capacity with SAR since 2008. And um, now I work as the director of professional development. So I support all of the trainers and um, provide hands-on consultation in classrooms. Wonderful. And once again, welcome and thank you to all three of you for being here. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, May is Better Hearing and Speech Month. Amy Dearman, what significance does that month hold for you? Uh, for that month, to me, it, it feels like a nice time to not only explain to people what we do as, um, as a speech language pathologist, but also um, give information on 
um, language development, speech development, um, hearing, so uh, helping people understand how to keep their, their ears safe, um, and, and also explaining just how we can support so many people uh, in, our, in our role. That was a pretty comprehensive answer, uh, and I agree with all of it. Um, I think that the general public often doesn't know the breadth of work that a speech pathologist does, from swallowing to augmentative communication, articulation therapy, working with the deaf population. I mean, it's very broad, and it's uh, not always common to have a specialty that works across the age ranges, which we do. Lori Kellogg, you've spent over 30 years in the field in a variety of roles. What changes have you seen take place in the profession during that time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I started, um, it was pretty much a direct service model working directly with the children. You know, of course, there would be some consultation with parents, but primarily working with the children. Over time, that has changed, I think, pretty dramatically and continues to evolve to more consultation. And there's pluses to that for sure, because we see children for such a small portion of time. And if we are working with the caregivers and can give them the skills and the tools they need, it enhances opportunities uh, for the child to make greater strides. That being said, I think it's been a challenge for many speech pathologists who were trained as direct service providers. I know in my training, I got no training in how to be a consultant with adults and how to work with adult learners around these topics other than being a speech pathologist. Um, so that's been a big evolution over the course of my career. And I think also um, what we see um, is that I think through our training, it we are kind of follow a medical model, probably wouldn't you say more? And so when we, when we get into like a school system where you're a related service, you know, you come alongside the curriculum and support the student in a different way. It's kind of uh, like, like Lori said, a little, it's kind of new. It's kind of, this is not what we were taught exactly to do. We were supposed to do direct services. So it's a little bit different mindset. Yeah, I think it also, um, piggybacking on what Nancy said, it does change from location to location. So in, in the school setting, uh, all of the goals and objectives are have to be tied to an educational need, which is sometimes difficult because you you might uh, work with a student that has additional needs, but they're not tied to educational needs. And so it can feel a little bit um, like ethically challenging, I guess, sometimes. Uh, and so that, that also is where I think the consultation model comes in that Lori was talking about where we can actually help students a little bit more if we can train the teachers to use the same strategies we might use or train the parents to use the same strategies and even um, even working with peers or peer buddies so that um, that the child is always getting that same support from everybody in their environment. Speaking of that student-centered approach and having a unified support team, 
What recommendations do you have for parents and family members and caregivers for utilizing speech language pathologists and their skill sets? Working in the early intervention, early childhood special ed population, I would always say to parents, stay with your child while they're receiving services. I know we've had some families who, you know, if our providers go in for a home visit, the parents will go in the other room and do dishes, thinking that the SLP has the magic that they're going to provide to the child. So my advice to parents is stay, observe as much as you possibly can. Any parent training opportunities, take advantage of them because, you know, I think parents get frustrated when their children aren't able to communicate in, in a successful way. And, and the best way to help them is to learn what's going to support them best rather than think that there's going to be some magic that's provided. Yeah, I think that's a great, um, that's great advice. And I think asking questions to understand a little bit more about the teaching strategies or the strategies that speech therapists are using in the sessions. Um, many times there are things that um, that can be embedded in routines or, um, or daily tasks that parents are doing. So um, not really meant to be a separate thing that's done in a separate place because that that that's not how communication works. It's something that you you have to do all day long. And so um, so understanding that you can um, provide opportunities at your child's breakfast time or um, or bath time, which is typically a really fun time, um, and even within play or driving in the car. So all of those opportunities are great times to work on language or communication. Um, as long as you keep it fun and natural, I think that's the best way to, to do that. Nancy Dunn, you've done some significant work with augmentative and alternative communication, also known as AAC, as well as with students with autism. Could you share some of your takeaways from that work? Yeah, so I was just thinking as as you talk about parent involvement and what should they do, one of the main things that we try to stress with teams that we work with um, is that you do need the parent and the student if they're you know able to do that involved in that decision making augmentative and alternative communication falls under a larger umbrella of assistive technology so whenever any assistive technology is needed um, we really um, support our teams in walking through a student-centered planning tool the one we use called the SET, which is S-E-T-T, student, S stands for student, E is environment, T is task, and the other T is tools. So you look at the student and what they need and what environments to complete what tasks before you, then you try to decide which tools kind of meet those needs. But the parents have to be involved in that. Um, They, you know, they're going to tell you what environments they're in, you know, do they need to talk it, you know, communicate something at church? Well, then you don't want voice output necessarily or whatever, you know, those kinds of things. Or we walked work with a, did a set with a, par- a family, a student, the whole team um, recently. And he goes every afternoon to his dad's office and wants to communicate with all the people there. So, you know, just finding out what the tasks are 
and what kinds of environments they're in are really important. So that the, the whole team has to be involved in it, the whole family. So it's not um, a tool. The tool's not the main. It is just a tool. It's not the main thing. It's it's what we need to accomplish some things for the student, if that makes sense. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you've brought this up because in a few conversations that I've had, and I can imagine you've had some of the same, it seems as though there are some myths and misunderstandings floating around about what OGCOM is. Could you dispel some of those and maybe give us a better understanding of assistive technology? One of the things I know about many parents that I've worked with over the years is that they want their children to talk. And some believe that if you introduce a device, that they're not going to talk. Um, and what we help to educate parents about is it's actually the opposite. That if we can get a tool into a child's hands that they're successful with and they realize the power of communication, it actually enhances the opportunity to verbally communicate if they have that capacity. I have this recollection of a child early in my career who was so apraxic, so apraxic, no one could understand him. Um, and we ultimately ended up utilizing augmentative device for him. And it actually improved his communication, decreased his frustration. It, it made him more successful all the way around. Um, so I would always encourage to use whatever tools work. It's never one thing that supports communication. And each child each human is different in terms of what they need, whether it's signing, whether it's pictures or a device, we use all of it. It also, uh, like Lori was bringing up, it, it's, it's for many, many reasons beneficial uh, to introduce different options to students and to families. So what works for one family might not work for another family, um, but what we do typically see is anytime we can provide some opportunities for the child to communicate, we see decreases in frustration, we see more um, excitement and participation in routines that they can be a part of. And, and just providing them that option is a really um, eye-opening thing for everybody to just see whether it's watching the child um, hand over a picture for the first time to to get something in exchange, or um, when they when they learn the power of the device, like wow, when I use this, I get things that I like. Um, and many times, uh, you you hear them pairing their um, vocalizations with the use of these communication opportunities, and it's really powerful uh, to to see that happening. Hi, everyone. This is your host, John Andrew Slominski, jumping in for a brief moment to ask for your help. We rely on listeners like you to help spread the word about the Autism Annex podcast. If you like what you hear, consider sharing the podcast with a friend this month. Wherever you listen to podcasts, please also subscribe to the Autism Annex, rate us, and leave us a review. It really helps new listeners to find the podcast. 
Thank you so much for your support. And now back to Amy, Lori, and Nancy. Focusing in on star and links, what are some ways in which these curricula emphasize communication, and how is that useful as a speech-language pathologist? Yeah, I think uh, for me, that was really an eye-opener as, uh, as an educator when I saw the STAR program had receptive and expressive language built into the, to the curriculum. I, I thought, wow, this is everything I do all, all the time. And I'm only with the student 30 minutes twice a week. There's no way I'm going to be able to make this progress. And so when the, when the teachers started using lessons to teach the students receptive and expressive language, and then when they understood, oh, I can embed this opportunity during snack time, and I can have his device next to him, or I can um, help this student use spontaneous language during snack. That was really uh, the key for me and, and just helping everybody to learn these strategies. And really, it became um, very easy for the entire team to then use the strategies. So yeah, I think embedding is, is really the key to success in the home and in, in schools. One of the things that I like to review with parents is uh, the order of how things are learned. And generally, the receptive communication comes first. Um, and children have to understand oftentimes to reproduce, although sometimes it's different. Um, uh, and, and I've heard parents at times say, oh, they know what I'm asking. They, they just are being lazy. They don't want to. Um, and it's a perception that I think sometimes is incorrect. And parents sometimes think their child understands the language when in fact they do not. Um, and that's an educational piece with parents um, to help them um, kind of check their judgment of what their child is able to understand and, and how to test that. I do think... Um one of the things that that has been really um, good for the speech pathologists that we work with in schools is to is how star breaks down the functional routines and how we can learn, teach them to embed the language opportunities within those routines has really just kind of uh, given them a different way to look at it that task analysis and where we can embed language and use the strategies the communication um, the AEC strategies um, has really been helpful. I think uh, for me, it helped me understand the scope and sequence of receptive language, ex expressive language, and um, spontaneous language. Even as a speech language pathologist in, in my training, I, I learned strategies to work with students, but in the STAR program, it really breaks it down into uh, measurable objectives for teachers to understand. So uh, we, we wouldn't start just jump right into teaching, I want cookie. Um, we would uh, work where the student is. So if the student is babbling or making sounds, which we call sound pairing, then we would increase their, the opportunities that they have to use those sounds. And then the next step might be imitation and then um, spontaneous language. So it gives you a nice scope and sequence, which 
I think can be really hard with specifically with students with complex needs, um, like many students with autism might have, where we, we don't often know where to start because there are many things that we could work on. And so sometimes you see goals and objectives in classrooms that are um, pretty far off of where the student is currently functioning. And the STAR program helps just provide that scope and sequence. And I think it, it also provides a nice way to show caregivers and teachers where we're going. And so uh, we can say, you know, yeah, the, the, the prerequisite to that is um, I, I want him to be able to identify letters and numbers. But first, um, some things that we might need to work on would be matching objects so he understands that these things in his environment have names. And so the STAR program provides a really nice scope and sequence for that and often helps people understand, okay, I, I need to work on this first, and then eventually I'll get to that point. And if I don't work on these things, then it could be really hard for the student to eventually get to those other um, higher level skills that we want to teach them. Well, and you bring up something that made me think of this, Amy, is giving language to a child's emotions. We give, help them create meaning to their environment. If a child is crying, you're sad. Or you wanted to go outside and it's not time to go outside, you're disappointed. Um, oh, I see you're really happy because you got to get that goldfish cracker. Um, so we're teaching social emotional learning at the same time we're giving language to what they're feeling. I do think it's interesting that even in level one, some of the very first lessons in the STAR curriculum are social communication lessons. Um, you know, wave and look at and those kinds of things because you have to start that, like you said, Lori, you have to start teaching those specifically to some students. Right. And for students with developmental disabilities, including autism, as you mentioned, there must be additional questions that come up. How do you get started with students with those support needs? It's interesting where to start with a child with autism. Um, and each one is different. And if a child is not attending at all to the people in their environment, sometimes discrete trial is a great starting point because it, it teaches them uh, there's some rewarding that goes on, that, that applied behavioral analysis. You do this, you get something, and it starts to get their attention. It has evolved since that, where we use pivotal response training that has a more social component, a give and take of communication. And we've uh, implemented some more pragmatic teaching, as Amy was discussing earlier, in direct teaching of social skills. Look at her face. Her face doesn't look happy. So, and then go from there. Um, so we have to directly teach those skills. When working with very young children, especially in the birth to three and three to five age groups, what are some of your priorities? Well, I think the one of the earliest things we try and do is help children have a means of getting their needs met other than crying. You know, crying is a form of communication without a doubt. Um, 
but it's not always super successful and it's not necessarily differentiated. So that's the earliest thing we try and do is work with parents to recognize children's communication attempts as they're evolving. So young children attempt to communicate in different ways that we just have to educate parents about. For example, looking at where the child is looking, that's a communication attempt using eye gaze, um, that joint attention, um, where they're reaching. And is it best to, to always give a child what they're asking for? And early on, my answer would be absolutely yes. Um, you don't withhold because if you want a child to understand that their communication is powerful, give them what they're requesting. And then over time, you shape that as they get older and they hit that three to five-year-old age. Then you, you teach some of that waiting, um, that things always don't come in an immediate uh, response. Um, so th that's what I think about is reinforcing the communication attempts that are there and then trying to shape them. There is something called that ASHA has on their website, and it was a joint committee that developed this Communication Bill of Rights. It just, you know, talks about that everybody has the right to communicate, to ask for things, to, to tell what they want, to refuse. And I think um, making sure that all of our teams, everybody we work with understands that this is their right to communicate is really important. That essential human right to communication is a perfect punctuation for this episode. All three of you have contributed so much, and there are many wonderful takeaways from today's conversation. Thank you all so much. It has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was fun. My guests today have been speech-language pathologists Amy Dearman, Nancy Dunn, and Lori Kellogg. I'm John Andrew Slominski. And as always, it is my privilege to serve as your host, engineer, and producer. I'd like to extend special thanks to all the speech-language pathologists who have supported students, teachers, and the STAR curriculum throughout the years. Your contributions are valued and appreciated. Listeners, this is for you. If you like what you hear on the Autism Annex podcast, please take a moment this month to share it with a friend who might also enjoy it. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, consider subscribing and leaving us a review. It really helps new listeners to find us. Thank you for your support. Until next time, my friends, take good care of yourself and one another.